Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and this is the third of four episodes dedicated to hand problems and their treatment. Today we'll focus on arthritis and on Dupuytren's contracture. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you are needing a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. The word contracture is kind of a vague term that generally means a body part is stuck in a certain position or configuration, but I'm using it here as a vehicle to help introduce our chosen topics of arthritis and Dupuytren's contracture. The former involves joints, and the latter involves just the soft tissues of the hand. So let's get right to it. What is arthritis? Well, the word root arth refers to joint, and the suffix itis usually means inflammation. So arthritis is irritation or inflammation involving a joint. It typically presents with pain, stiffness, and even swelling of a joint. Yes, arthritis can start out with inflammation, and we discussed inflammation in the last episode, number 27, though I've saved arthritis until this episode to talk about because it's a big topic, and the end stages of arthritis in the hand can often result in contractures. We hear about arthritis so often, and we tend to associate it with old age, but actually, it can occur at much younger ages than you may think. And there is a reason we hear about it so often, Arthritis is pretty common in our species. In fact, it's estimated that approximately one in every five people over the age of 18 has been diagnosed with arthritis, although probably there are a lot more undiagnosed cases running around out there. Not every case of arthritis is symptomatic. And with that frequency of occurrence, it's thought that there is probably a strong component of genetic tendency for many people to develop arthritis at some point in their lives. But of course, arthritis itself is a pretty broad term, so we really need to break it down further. By far the most common category of arthritis is degenerative arthritis. It's the wear and tear kind, and it's also known as osteoarthritis. A different and less common category of arthritis would be inflammatory arthritis. And within this latter category, there are several varieties, but the most frequent is rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. By the way, autoimmune simply means that the body's immune system attacks itself for reasons unknown. So let's begin by talking about degenerative arthritis since it's the most widely seen type, the type that you and I are most likely to get if we don't have it already. Again, it's the wear and tear type of arthritis that develops over time as we live our busy lives. Although, its development can be accelerated by an isolated trauma or injury to a particular joint. And, in case you're wondering, it's not caused by cracking your knuckles all the time. This may be an annoying habit, but it's not really thought to be very problematic in the long term. To make it easier for you to understand the process of how degenerative arthritis develops, let me first briefly describe the anatomy of a joint. As you know, The joint is a mobile or flexible connection between two bones, but it has its own unique structure. The ends of the bones are beautifully contoured to fit together with each other, almost like puzzle pieces, if you will, and then typically each have a little cap of cartilage for cushioning. The cartilage is slippery, 
and reduces the friction in the joint as the bones move against each other. Now the ends of these bones, with their cartilage caps, are held in position and aligned with each other by tough fibrous ligaments, which attach one bone to the next. But there is a little gap left between the bone ends, so that there is still room for things to move. Now the ligaments don't really have much elasticity. They need to be strong, so that as the joint moves, it is supported rather than being kind of wobbly. Then typically encasing or surrounding each joint is what's called a joint capsule, which is a sac that is relatively watertight. The interior lining of the sac has synovial cells, which produce synovial fluid. The fluid is slippery and lubricates the joint to make the bone ends glide on each other, again reducing friction. It's a great system, but like many things in our body, it's not invincible. Over time, whether it's from general wear and tear, overuse, or just age, the nice cartilage cushion at the end of the bones in the joint can start to thin out or break down. It's uncertain if this is a purely mechanical process or if there is some inflammation that can lead to a tendency for cartilage breakdown. It may be a combination of both. In any case, after time, when the cartilage has worn down a fair amount, raw bone starts to become exposed inside the joint and it can grind against the other bone. That produces inflammation and pain. The bone can eventually start to break down too, but the body also responds to what it sees as an injury by trying to overgrow and thicken the bone. It's trying to protect itself from future injury. In this process, that's when osteophytes, also known as bone spurs, can begin to form. These can be painful as well because they can poke or rub on the tender tissues in the nearby area. This irritation results in further inflammation and all the while, the synovial lining of the joint capsule is producing more fluid to try to lubricate and remedy the situation. Over time, this produces stretching and weakening of the capsule. Now the supporting ligaments can become stretched out from all this process. As a result, the joint can start to become unstable and either shift in position or become partially or fully dislocated. In other words, bones no longer sit in their proper socket which can create further problems of degeneration of the joint since the bone ends will now be ill-fitting and add irritation from rubbing against each other in their new awkward positions. In the worst case, on external exam looking at the body part from the outside, the joint may take on the appearance of being knobby or gnarly and angulated, and it probably can't do its job of graceful motion very well either. In the end stage, Bone overgrowth can be so significant that the joint can't really move anymore. It's like it fuses itself. But again, this could be considered a protective maneuver on the body's part, since the movement of an arthritic joint causes more inflammation and pain. Then when the joint stops moving altogether, such as with this autofusion, the pain typically stops as well. As a side note, here's an interesting phenomenon. If one of the arthritic joints in the hand starts to angulate and fail, in other words, meaning it gets crooked, the next joint down the line, so to speak, may tend to take on a reciprocal or opposite configuration, even if it's not diseased. And it has to do with the physics and mechanics of our hand anatomy. For example, let's say someone develops a hyperextension deformity or contracture of the thumb joint where it attaches to the hand. The joint may look kind of flipped up, if you will, and have difficulty flexing or bending down. As a result, the next joint in line, towards the tip of the thumb, may start to take on the opposite configuration when sitting at rest, namely in a flexed position. 
So, looking at it from the side, the whole thumb can take on a zigzag appearance. You can think of it like a train that crashes or gets derailed. The cars of the train pile up in a zigzag configuration, rather than bending the same way or compressing into each other straight on. It's all because of that fascinating way we're built. Now in degenerative arthritis, the most commonly involved joints in the hand are found in two places. One is way down at the base of the thumb, meaning where it meets the wrist called the basilar joint or the CMC joint. CMC stands for carpal metacarpal. Carpal meaning wrist and metacarpal is the name of the long bones in the hand. So this is the joint where the base of the first metacarpal bone, that of the thumb, meets the wrist. The other commonly involved area is at the very last or furthest joints on the fingers. These are called distal interphalangeal joints. Distal means far away, and inter means between. And the phalanges are another name for the finger bones. Yes, these two are the most common areas, but certainly multiple joints of the hand and wrist can be involved in developing degenerative arthritis. How to diagnose it? Well, examination of the hand does give some big clues as to what might be going on, especially if the arthritis is a relatively advanced case. But x-rays of the joint give a more definitive answer. The earliest findings might be a narrowing or shrinking of the space between the two bones in the joint. And later, bone overgrowth, degeneration, and malposition can be seen. Though in the very beginning of arthritis, no x-ray changes may yet be seen. In terms of treatment, there really is no cure for arthritis, unfortunately, but it can be managed. The goals are to try to reduce pain, but also maintain as much function as possible. Degenerative arthritis usually produces bouts of pain and swelling, particularly early on. So treatment usually starts with anti-inflammatory medication, as well as rest until the flare is over, with possibly a splint to facilitate this. On a regular basis, Activity and movement are considered helpful to keep the joint functional and keep the surrounding musculature in good condition. But overuse and overexercise are counterproductive. Some people think dietary changes to avoid so-called inflammatory foods like sugar, etc., may help reduce flares, but the jury is still out on that. Beyond these conservative treatment options, an occasional steroid injection might be considered to introduce potent anti-inflammatory medication directly into the problem joint. These injections can be of great benefit, though care should be taken not to have too many in the same spot, as they can result in some atrophy or deterioration of the tissues, creating new problems. Most people can get along quite well in this manner, again just managing the flares. But if joint angulation, dislocation, or contracture has developed, then more consistent splinting may need to be utilized. And yet, if pain or impaired everyday function is persistent and cannot be relieved by these standard maneuvers, then surgery is often considered. The type of surgery could include mechanically fusing a joint, again to stop movement and therefore stop pain, as well as to bring stability to an unstable joint. Or sometimes the joint could just be resurfaced or cushioned with new soft tissues brought into the area. Alternatively, a joint replacement or artificial joint could be considered. Unfortunately, these can have some limitations in stability themselves given their small nature at the hand level, and they're not suitable for every joint in the hand. You know, they're not quite the same as joint replacements for a knee or a hip, but they still can be a nice solution in the right spot.
In general, the choice of treatment largely depends on the specific joint involved. A skilled hand surgeon will make the best recommendations. Next, what about rheumatoid arthritis, the autoimmune disease mentioned earlier? You may wonder how it is different. It may actually start at an earlier age than degenerative arthritis, as there is an entity called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, though this is less common. Interestingly, rheumatoid arthritis typically involves paired joints, meaning the same joints on opposite sides of the body will usually start to swell and hurt at the same time. This disease typically starts out with our own body attacking the synovial tissue that lines the insides of the joint capsule. This tissue can thicken and create painful problematic nodules and joint swelling. Eventually, the cartilage and bone become affected as well and deteriorate. Joints can break down and bones can shift, resulting in not only pain but also limitation of hand function. The wrist is frequently involved, and that's not so different than degenerative arthritis, but the specific areas within the wrist that are first involved do typically differ. And regarding the hands and fingers, the most commonly involved joints are the big knuckles or joints of the hand, where the fingers meet the hand. To a lesser degree, the middle joints of the fingers may also become involved. Rarely does rheumatoid arthritis affect the very distal or farthest joint of the fingers, those distal interphalangeal joints. So most times if a person is found to have arthritis there, it is likely not going to be rheumatoid arthritis. In advanced degrees, rheumatoid arthritis can produce some quite profound deformities, contractures, and functional deficits as it becomes end-stage. There is a fair amount of overlap between rheumatoid arthritis and degenerative arthritis in terms of diagnosis and treatment, but there are some differences. With rheumatoid arthritis, there are lab tests that can be done to screen for it, although they are not always positive in every case. And as for treatment, the protocol for progressing from conservative options to surgical options would be similar in concept. But additionally, there are specific medications that can be used to curb the autoimmune nature of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, if problematic joint changes have already occurred, splinting or surgical intervention may still need to be undertaken. But these days, if the diagnosis of rheumatoid can be made before too much damage is done by the disease, early use of these medications can actually help prevent some of the devastating joint changes in the future. Moving on, let's now discuss Dupuytren's contracture. While arthritis involved joints, Dupuytren's involves soft tissue, and it's a completely different animal. With Dupuytren's contracture, a very specific soft tissue is affected, and no one knows for certain why. Soft tissue involved is the palmar aponeurosis, or the palmar fascia. It is fibrous, and it is essentially like gristle tissue that sits as a thin sheet underneath the skin of the palm. Actually, Dupuytren's can involve other areas of the body, too, but we are focused only on the upper extremity here today. So going back to the hand anatomy again, there happens to be this layer of fascia that sits right underneath the skin of our palm. But what is its function? Well, it's there to secure and stabilize the skin of the palm. So when you go to grab an object, the palm skin will not slide around like the loose skin over the back of your hand can. Go ahead and feel the difference right now as you're listening. When you try to shift the palm skin, it tends to stay in place. But when you try to shift the skin on the back of the hand, it slides all around. 
Well, Dupuytren's disease, or contracture, is named after the Frenchman who wrote about it in the 1830s, yet he was not actually the first to describe it. We don't know the cause of Dupuytren's, even though there are a few developing theories. But in any case, that layer of fascia starts to thicken up abnormally and can form nodules or knots in the palm. These can be tender, and over time, as more and more fascia becomes involved with the disease, these nodules can start to coalesce together and form contracture cords. These contracture cords involve the palm skin and the fascia, and in turn, limit the ability of the hand to fully straighten out. In the worst case scenario, one or more fingers can start to be contracted into the palm and not be able to be lifted up manually. In later stages, that can be a real problem when you're trying to put your hand in your pocket, grasp an object, type, play a musical instrument, or even shake hands with someone. Who gets this problem? Well, there often tends to be a hereditary component, and in particular, people who are of Northern European or Scandinavian descent are more likely to inherit it. That's why it's sometimes been colloquially referred to as Viking's disease or Celtic hand. More men than women seem susceptible to Dupuytren's, and there have even been some occasional associations of this disease with patients who also have seizure disorder or alcoholism. Diagnosis is usually made by the characteristic exam findings of nodules and palpable contractor cords in the palm. Though at first, some may confuse it with a deeper tendon problem or even a trigger finger. Remember that we talked about what makes a trigger finger in the previous episode, number 27. No, Dupuytren's does not involve tendons at all. The tendons sit much deeper in the palm, and Dupuytren's is a more superficial problem. Though, a contracture cord can almost look like a tendon, as if a tendon had miraculously popped up to the surface. In terms of treatment, like many other hand ailments, we usually first try conservative methods and then progress to surgery as needed. In the case of any palm or nodules which may be painful, we could try a series of steroid injections directly into them to try to get them to soften and to ease pain. But like other times when we use steroids, the effects often eventually wear off and the problem may progress. And here I should add that this disease entity, Dupuytren's, is notorious for recurrence. That's actually the main reason we don't jump to surgery every time we see it. We wait until there is a true functional problem or the presence of persistent pain. If a contractor cord has developed and one or more fingers are being pulled down toward the palm, we measure the limitation of the movement of the involved finger joints. If they meet certain criteria, we could progress to surgical excision of the contractor cord. But before we get to that point, there are other things that can be tried. Frankly, I have not found splinting to be very successful in trying to avoid contractors, unfortunately. But there is a more recent intervention which may be helpful. It is the injection of an enzyme called collagenase with the trade name Xiaflex, that's spelled X-I-A-F-L-E-X. And when injected, it can start to dissolve some of the thick cord, creating a weak point. After this weak point has been created, in the office, a physician can numb up the hand and do a slow stretch on the fingers to get the contracture cord to pop under the skin. In doing so, the goal is to release the contracture that was pulling the finger down. The rest of the cord is still present, but now, if successful, the finger can straighten out of the palm. Like anything, there can be some complications associated with this treatment, including the enzyme not being able to make a good enough weak point in the contractor cord to allow satisfactory cord rupture. Or, the enzyme might weaken or rupture nearby structures that were unintended. Also, 
the collagenase, or Zioflex, is not always a final solution. A rough estimate for recurrence of contracture with enzyme injection is 25% or greater. There is also an intervention that can be done in the office called needle aponeurotomy, or percutaneous needle fasciotomy. In terms of word roots, otomy means to cut something, and in this case, it's the aponeurosis, or fascia, of the palm. So this procedure involves numbing up the palm and gently placing a needle through the skin, then under the cord. The sharp end of the needle is used to cut the cord in half from underneath, and then the finger can be straightened. It's a bit like the concept of the enzyme, except a needle is being used to accomplish the goal. But yes, if these treatments have failed to give any lasting results, or if the surgeon recommends bypassing them, then a formal surgical procedure can be undertaken. In this case, incisions are made in the palm, and the skin is elevated to expose the diseased tissue, with the patient asleep or numbed up, of course, and the entire contractor cord is surgically removed. Care has to be taken, however, because sometimes the cord has wrapped around a nerve, which could be damaged during cord excision. And even with this more definitive method of treatment, there can be recurrence of contracture, as the adjacent or nearby fascial tissues can then become involved with Dupuytren's. Frustrating! For those patients who have had recurrence after recurrence, there is a more aggressive surgery, and most times quite successful. It's called a dermatofasciectomy. It involves removing large areas of palm skin and underlying fascia completely. Then the area is either covered with a skin graft or left open under a dressing and allowed to just heal in on its own. It may sound a bit gruesome, but for those people who have had persistent problems, it can be quite a reasonable solution. Downtime after Dupuytren's treatment varies with the type of treatment, as you might expect. Of course, it's shorter with the less invasive interventions, but can be up to a couple of months for the more aggressive surgeries and any needed hand therapy afterwards. Once again, we've covered a fair amount of ground, even though it really was just two main topics. But I hope this arms you with some good information, should you have to encounter either of these problems in the future. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. <laughs>